You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. We're launching a new series, and the series is entitled, When God Builds His Church. Pastor Jason put this cool graphic together, Blueprint. Of course, we know what a blueprint does, right? It's a schematic. It's an idea of what uh, God wants to build. And so that's going to be our metaphor as we move forward. But to launch, um, as I studied in preparation, I was thinking back to uh, a number of years ago, I had the privilege to uh, go on a study tour in South Korea. And the reason for the study tour was to learn about prayer. We talk here at Westwind much about being a house of prayer. Relentless prayer is one of our core values. And so the Koreans pray. They're a praying church. But one of the cool things we got to do, along with learning about prayer in Korea, was also visit some of their churches and meet pastors and staff and learn. And so it was a remarkable experience. One of the highlights of that trip was going to the Yodi Gospel Fellowship. At that time, and probably still today, is the largest church in the world, one million baptized believers. Now, what's remarkable about that is, prior to World War II, Korea was pagan. There was very little Christian influence. However, today, per capita, they are one of the leading countries, if not the number one leading country per capita of Christ followers. How remarkable. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is in a very pagan place. It's a place called Caesarea Philippi, northern part of Israel, dedicated to Caesar, empire worship. And he says to his disciples these powerful words. He says, I will build my church, and notice, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Why does Jesus use the metaphor gates of hell? What are gates in the ancient world? They're simply defensive. Have you ever thought about that hell really is on the defensive and Christ is on the offensive? Friends, we went through the book of Acts for over a year. That's what took place. The gospel advanced from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, Rome. That was the message of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. And so here we have a series as we... Uh, prepare for the next four months in First Thessalonians to think about advancing the church, to pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to encourage you, we're going to challenge you, we're going to exhort you to be on the offensive. That's the picture in Scripture, to be bold, to be all in with the gospel. Why? The gospel's the power of God unto salvation. It transforms lives. Do a study on South Korea. It is remarkable. From pagan dominance to a flourishing church. I'll never forget flying into South Korea, into Seoul, and seeing the churches and the crosses uh, that were just elevated, testifying of how the gospel transforms. And so, to prepare for this idea when God builds his church, we're going to look this morning at how the church in Thessalonica was planted. Uh, there is a very strategic uh, initiative we're going to see in the book of Acts. And so, for some of you who have been through Acts over the past year, a little bit of review, 
Uh, for those of you who are brand new, uh, you know, we'll catch up. So Acts 17, but I hope you have um, your Connect card, because I always like to start out with the blessing or the thesis of the talk this morning. And I believe this, because of Christ's vision, every Christian should prioritize building the church. That should be our heart and soul. That should be our priority. I had the privilege to meet the pastor of the Yodi Gospel Fellowship, a dedicated man who went home to be with the Lord, gave his life to the cause of the gospel in South Korea, but he came from North Korea. He came out of paganism. He came out of persecution. He came out of torture to see Christ's name be glorified in South Korea. So four priorities this morning. Let's dive in. Priority number one, pursuing God. As we went through the book of Acts for that year, there was one thing that stood out to me time and time and time again. You know I'm big on repetition. When the Bible repeats itself, it's trying to get our attention. It's called precept after precept. There is a repeated theme in the book of Acts that I want to review with you this morning that suggests the starting point for building Christ's church is pursuing God. Seeking him with all your hearts. So let me review that. You don't need to turn in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen. It starts in Acts chapter 1. Do you remember what happens? Christ ascends into heaven. They're a little bit fearful, the 120 disciples. They're meeting in a place called the upper room. And what are they doing? Let's take a look. All these were continually, notice the phrase, united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They didn't believe early on, but then they came to genuine faith in Christ. And here they are, united in prayer, pursuing God. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes. They're given supernatural gifts, the gospel advanced to what's called the diaspora Jews, and then they're dispersed back to their countries, and next thing you know, the gospel is flourishing in the Mediterranean world. But not only was that pursuing God true in Jerusalem, let me take you north to a place called Joppa. This is right on the coast. This is a place where Jonah says, you know what, not going to Nineveh, he took off and went the other way. Look what's happening in Joppa. The next day, as they were traveling nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. Please don't miss this. This is very intentional with Luke. Just imagine you're, you're an Orthodox Jew who comes to genuine faith in Christ, and you're still practicing Judaism. They had prayer rituals, which is fine. It's traditions. It's the noon hour. Peter's praying on the roof. What happens? God intervenes. It's a divine appointment, supernatural vision. Don't call unclean what God has called clean. Go to Gentiles, preach the gospel. Concurrently, at the same time, a gentleman named Cornelius, a Roman soldier, is in Caesarea, 45 minutes up the road. He's experiencing a divine encounter, too. The two meet. The gospel advances to Cornelius, to that important city on the coast built by Herod the Great, Caesarea. And again, the gospel keeps moving forward. But how? Through prayer, through pursuing God, continuing on. Now we go north from Jerusalem to Joppa to Antioch. Look at Acts 13, 1 through 3. And I'm going to abbreviate here because there's some weird names. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. But notice, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting 
And then the Holy Spirit intervenes. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I called them to. Then after they had fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, they sent them off. Friends, this is remarkable. I want you to highlight in your thinking the phrase ministering to the Lord. Have you ever thought about what that means? It's spending time with God, communing with him in fellowship with him. This is 1 John, that we have fellowship with God and with one another through the precious work of Jesus Christ. The church is gathered for a special time of prayer and fasting. And in that pursuit of God, what happens? Another divine appointment. The Holy Spirit speaks, and I take this audibly. I've had a few occasions over... 40-plus years as a believer. Very deliberate. Set apart for me two guys from the apostles and prophets. Barnabas and Saul to do what? Take the gospel to the Mediterranean world. How did it happen? When they're pursuing God, when they're ministering to the Lord, when they're fasting and praying. And friends, what that means for practice, for church life, we can certainly do that on our own in a very personal way, but this is a corporate setting. Wouldn't it be great if Westwood had some corporate times where we're dedicated to ministering to the Lord, fasting and praying, seeking God's will, hearing his voice, and being directed in a manner worthy of the gospel. I've introduced a dear friend of mine. His name is Reverend Yesu Bandela. We have a partnership with him in Vijayawada in Hyderabad, India. Uh, Yesu is just a sweet, sweet man. And one of the things Yesu does that has inspired Ellen and I is every year, it's in the annual calendar of the Gospel Association of India, 40 days of prayer and fasting for the pastors and leaders of the church. 40 days, folks. I've had colleagues who have practiced that 40 days. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't even come close to that kind of ministering to the Lord, pursuing God. Here's a beautiful picture. It's a remarkable picture for Ellen and I. This is the very room that Yesu's father was martyred by a Hindu man who stabbed him to death. And when Yesu was 21, graduating from university, and his father's bleeding, and, and his, his life is being taken, he said, son, do two things. Take care of mom and take care of the ministry. Fast forward, 55 years later, Jesus leading a thriving ministry in Vijayawada, Hyderabad, Delhi, and so forth. But you know what that room where his father was martyred is dedicated to? One thing, continual prayer 24-7. We've witnessed it. We've been in there and praying. Folks, this is what it means to minister to the Lord. This is what it means to pursue God and let God show up and direct his work. So we started in Jerusalem, went to Joppa, then to Antioch. Now let's move over to a place called Philippi. If you recall in Acts 16, they're thinking about going east to Bithynia. Uh, Paul gets a vision, goes west to Philippi. Look what happens in Philippi. Three encounters in prayer, and God does a work. Let me show you one of them. Acts 16, 13, on a Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. They're pursuing God. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. Remember, 
Uh, God opened Lydia's heart, a professional woman, a seller of purple. She comes to faith in Christ. The church is born in Philippi in her home. Next, Acts 16, 16. Once, and we're still in Philippi, as we were on our way to prayer, notice, pursuing God, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. Remember that encounter? And boy, the, the gal gets freed in Christ and... The uh, folks who owned her, possessed her, who ripped her off, they were ticked off at Paul and Silas, beat them, whipped them, flogged them, threw them in prison. Guess what happens in jail? Let me show it to you. Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Folks, here you are after being flogged. Your back is literally ripped apart. You're in a nasty dungeon cell, and what are you doing at midnight hour? It's not what was me. It's not man, Paul. We made, we made a bad mistake. You sure you had the right vision? They're singing, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're ministering to God. And what happens to the Philippian jailer? After an earthquake, divine intervention, the Philippian jailer is like, man, I'm in trouble. I'm going to, you know, prisoners are, are escaping. I'm going to be killed. And he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And if you know the beautiful truth, Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, you and your household. That night, Paul and Silas came to the Philippian jailer's house. The gospel is preached, baptism for the whole family. Do you see how pursuit of God sets the stage for the kingdom of God to come? One of the most inspiring stories that comes out of American history goes all the way back to a place called Williams College. You can go there today near, Mass in, near Boston. It's called the Haystack Prayer Movement. How many have ever heard of the Haystack Prayer Movement? Just curious. Okay, cool. Um, this is a big deal, guys. The Haystack Prayer Movement, just imagine five young men going to university, studying Latin, studying Greek, studying Hebrew, thinking about ministry. These are scholars, but these guys have heart. So they're regularly praying. And one day there was just this crazy storm. And so they kind of try to uh, find a place of uh, cover, and they go into a barn where there's hay and keep praying. And guess what is born from uh, that prayer meeting? Let me show it to you. The student volunteer movement uh, was born. What's so significant about the student volunteer movement? It is an enormous movement that God used in America through five men who committed to praying, to pursuing God. Here's what happened. They were inspired to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The first time ever in American history that the U.S. deployed missionaries. Now, here's the encouragement. Just through one mission organization that was founded, 5,000 missionaries over the past 100 plus 50 years in 34 different contexts received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is remarkable. It all begins in pursuing God. 
to be relentless in pursuing him. This is what Jeremiah encouraged. God says to Jeremiah the prophet, to Israel and to us, you will seek me and find me when you search for me. How? With all your heart. That is what happens in the book of Acts. They're ministering to the Lord. They're fasting and praying. These five men dedicated to, to praying together, interceding, hearing from God, being mobilized for kingdom work. So there's a promise here. God says, when you seek me, you'll find me. Isn't that encouraging? Folks, that should inspire us to seek the Lord. But how do we do it with all our hearts? That's called passion. This is what Jesus said in John 4, worshiping the Father in spirit, small less, passionately, and truth. And so, sometimes I like to encourage you with resources because if you're like me, you get stuck, right? And you say, you know, I need a jump start here. What, what could propel me maybe to move in that direction to pursue the Lord. I want to recommend two resources this morning. The one here, Margaret Feinberg, an exceptional servant of God being used all across America and beyond, especially in women's ministry. Now, I know Westwind has used some of her curriculum. She has a beautiful study, eight weeks, on just pursuing God. And then A.W. Tozer, I hope you know that name, Please tell me somebody knows who, yes. He's a thinker, but boy, oh boy, he'll capture your heart. And this is one of the classics in Christianity, pursuit of God. Maybe you need a jump start. Maybe you need encouragement to seek the Lord like the early church, to minister to the Lord, fasting, praying, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. That's the heart of where it begins to build Christ's church. Pursuit number two, proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel. Now to our text, Acts 17. This is the section where the church of Thessalonica is born. So track with me. Uh, we're on the second missionary journey. It's Paul, Silas, and team. And here's what we read. Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to a place called Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Very important information. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. So... We're in Philippi. If you know the backstory there, prayer, prayer, prayer. Lydia, seller of purple, a slave girl gets freed by the gospel. The Philippian jailer in his household, the church is born in Lydia's home, established. But there was persecution in Philippi. They head down about 90 to 100 miles. Uh, they traveled along a Roman road. It's called the uh, Ignatian Way. And the first stop is where? And this is strategic, folks. Paul goes to the synagogue. Why does he go to the synagogue? If you're taking notes, please write this down because this is so important in Lucan theology. Common denominators are so vital to building bridges in people's lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Sarah Houston and I, we had a conversation this morning about uh, some training and podcast she's listening to, how to build bridges to a people group that's struggling maybe with Christianity, their identity, and so forth. So how do you build bridges? Well, you, you understand what's going on. You have an idea of their worldview. There's common ground. What is the common ground between Paul and the synagogue? Real simple. Old Testament scriptures. And there's God-fearers in the synagogue. These were Gentiles who crossed over. Maybe they weren't circumcised. Maybe they weren't practicing uh, the laws of Judaism, but they crossed over to worship the one true God. We talked about God-fearers in the past. Lydia was a God-fearer. Cornelius was a God-fearer. And there were others. So Paul goes to a place where there's common ground. And friends, when you and I want to see Christ's church built, establish common ground with people. Whatever it is. Uh, two of the things my buddies did when I was very much outside of Christ and outside of church and very deeply in the world as a teenager, my buddies would call and say, Hey, Keith, we're getting together. It's a foosball tournament. You want to play? I love foosball. Well, there was no alcohol, no drugs. There was foosball, and we went at it for an afternoon. Then John would call and say, Hey, going skiing, man. You interested? I love to ski. We went skiing. No drugs, no partying, just hang time with Christians. We had fun. They built bridges to common ground, things that I liked, but they were progressively sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul's doing here. He's building common ground, and what does he do? He preaches Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. How remarkable. Now, notice, there's a focus when we think about proclaiming Christ. There's so many things you and I can talk about in Christianity, right? Which version of the Bible should we align with? Hey, that's a worthy discussion, but probably not to build common ground. We don't want to talk about secondary issues or seven days of creation, as important as that is. When we're talking to not yet Christian people, we want to build common ground to focus on one thing. And what is that one thing? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice what it says in verse 3. There's three points to what Paul explained, what he clarified, that Christ had to suffer, die, and be raised, and that Jesus Christ is what? The Messiah, the Savior of the world. Fix your eyes on Jesus when you build these bridges, when you proclaim Christ. It takes discernment, folks, to not get off track because there's so many issues that kind of rip us apart in our culture. Try to come back to Jesus who he is, what he's done. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus, Caesarea Philippi, pagan territory, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Point people to Jesus constantly, and then we'll build his church. Paul said this to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I did not think it was a good idea to know anything among you. Notice this next phrase, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that a blessing? It's a blessing. Focus on Jesus. We had a family visiting a couple weeks ago from our community and got introduced to them. I say, hey, how'd you find Westwood? Oh, I went online. I said, oh, what drew you to Westwood? Well, church is struggling a little bit. I said, well, can you tell me a little bit more? I'd love to pray with you. And I did pray with them. He says, yeah, we're in a denomination that goes back uh, hundreds of years. 
in fact, 400 years, called the RCA, Reformed Church of America. And he said they're struggling right now with who they're going to be. And so I went online uh, early that week to do a little bit of homework and research, and my heart was broken, guys. We're talking about one of the long-standing denominations in America, Reformed Church of America, 400 years old, fully evangelical. This past January, the rift took place. And there's many issues, but the number one issue is, is Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life? And no one comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. It's the issue of the gospel. It's the issue of proclaiming Christ, that Christ suffered, he died, was buried, he rose from the grave. Jesus is Lord. We point people to Jesus. How sad, over the past 400 years, how many mainline denominations have compromised the foundational message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and the life. We're not arrogant here at Westwood, but I'll tell you, we are a people of grace and truth. Unless Jesus Christ is central, gospel-centric, we have no message, folks. We just have a moral book. And so let's proclaim Christ. Let's put him front and center. Paul said this to the church at Rome. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. Don't miss this. Because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. That's all-inclusive, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. I don't think, if I have an accurate pulse of West Wind, that we are ashamed of the gospel. I don't, I don't think that's our heart. I think I know you well enough to say we, we believe the gospel. You know where I think we struggle and I struggle? We're lackadaisical about the gospel. We think there's more time. There's a lack of urgency. Personalize that if that speaks to you. I know it speaks to me, guys. When I came to genuine faith in Christ out of a, a train wreck of a, a, a teenage years, drug culture and so forth, I was so eager to share Jesus. Mom came to faith in Christ two months after that. Friends, I talked to a friend last night, John Garris, who came to faith in Christ pretty soon after I did. He's still in Christ, an elder in my home church. I remember how eager we were to share Christ. Where's that passion? What happened, Keith? You just get comfortable? Life gets too busy and problematic? Keep the gospel central. Yesterday, we had our vision proper meeting. Very encouraged to share with you that our team was a full complement. We're moving forward with some great things. We looked back and reviewed. And I want to encourage you. We celebrated some, some great initiatives. One was the three circles training. Remember that? Turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. Three of our six life groups uh, accomplished that, learned some things, experienced some growth. We're celebrating that. But Pastor Jason was charged then to say, hey, we still got three more life groups. But we were also thinking, what about doing it more of a, a class or, or a session beyond life group? Anybody could participate. So be praying about that. I can honestly say this, since I started the Three Circles training months ago, God has used that in my life because it's just an easy way to build bridges. Boom, boom, boom. It just makes sense. 
in a culture that's so broken and helping people through Jesus Christ come back to God's design. So life group leaders, take that to heart. Pastor Jason's going to be encouraging you. So priority number three, and this is an interesting one, but persevering in the faith, persevering in the faith. I know I've touched on this a little bit in the past, but I want to go a little bit deeper today, so stick with me. Acts 17, 5 through 9. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace. Remember that? Love that word, scoundrels. Gee whiz. Formed a mob and started a riot in the city. You know, if you think you got it tough at work or tough in your neighborhood, I mean, here's some scoundrels that are hired. You know, get together a mob, and now it's, it's time for trouble. Notice, remember who they attacked? Pastor Jason's house. Attacking Jason's house in Waukee, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, I love that phrase, have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another King Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd, the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and others, they released them. There's a pattern in the book of Luke, 28 chapters, written over a period of about 25, 30 years of church history. The gospel advances, opposition comes. That's just how it is. Think through just for a moment, folks. Whenever you preach Christ and him crucified and people take interest, there will always be spiritual opposition. Why? The kingdom of darkness has no interest in the kingdom of light penetrating their gates, their walls. But remember, we're called to be on the offensive, not the defensive. So opposition's here. But recall, Jesus forecasted that, right? Let me share with you Matthew 5. Jesus said, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So Jesus said, you preach Christ, you share the gospel, you advance the kingdom, there will be opposition, but you're blessed in doing that. But there's another side to persecution and opposition. There's another side to persevering in the faith, and let me show it to you. Jesus also gave a warning. So stick with me, it's on the screen. The warning is given in Matthew 13. Because persecution can also cause spiritual abandonment. And friends, I've seen this, and I'll share a story. So here's what Jesus says in a parable. He says, you then listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is the one sowing along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Notice this next phrase. Yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he stumbles, drifts, falls back. Persecution's a real issue in Christendom. Sometimes, maybe not so much so in North America, we might get a little pressure from family, from loved ones, and, you know, you just seem weird right now as a Christian, and we don't party together, and you get a little bit of that. Overseas, the ancient world, persecution was just rampant, and it caused huge rifts in families, between husbands and wives, in cultures and communities and neighborhoods. Let me tell you a story about a gentleman named Babia. 
Bobby I became a dear friend in Mali, West Africa. We were in six villages planting churches, and Bobby I was one of the uh, individuals who came to faith in Christ pretty early on. There's how we baptize in Mali. It's pretty beautiful because we don't have water as you would know it. So we fill up these bins and buckets and we baptize. And uh, Babia was all in, all in. He was leading his village. People were coming to faith in Christ. God was using them. And one time we came back after six months of not being in his village and met with him and his family. And there's a picture of his beautiful family. His wife professed faith in Christ. And Babia looked at me with brokenness. He said, Pastor Keith, I can no longer follow Jesus publicly. I believe in Jesus. I like what the Bible teaches, but I can no longer follow Jesus publicly. It costs me too much. You know what it cost them in Mali? A son, it'll cost them their inheritance. An inheritance isn't, you know, millions of dollars or thousands of dollars. It's a cow. You lost your cow. You know how important a cow is in an agrarian society? The cost is great because the family gets broken. They want nothing to do with you. And then your business, if you're a businessman, which you was, it no longer flourishes as it once did. Why? You came to genuine faith in Christ. I don't know where Bobby is today. It broke my heart to have that conversation with him. We couldn't persuade him otherwise. Whenever we preached the gospel, we always talked about persecution as Jesus did. But friends, this is real. It's real as the air we breathe. And so where's Bobby? Only God knows, right? But there's a beautiful message in Scripture. When you're truly in Christ, you're truly in Christ. That's what it means to persevere in the faith. And I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. So here's what it means. Philippians 1.6. Here's what Paul wrote to church. He says, I'm sure of this, that Jesus, who started a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Friends, that's a promise. If Christ has begun a God work in you, a gospel work in you, if he's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, he will absolutely continue that work until the day Christ returns. That's called perseverance of the faith. Now, some of you are thinking, like I have this experience with my dear friend. What about those who profess Christ and just drifted away? What about those who made a profession of Christ, maybe were baptized and walked away? How do you handle that? Can I show you a few scriptures? And I share this with you lovingly. I'm not trying to be a prophet today. I'm trying to teach you what the Bible says. But perseverance of the faith is a real doctrine in scripture. What God begins, he'll complete in Christ. That's the message. So let me show you a few things. In 1 John 2.19, here's what the apostle John wrote. He, he encountered this in his day. He said, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they wouldn't have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. John's heart was broken. He had people who were once with them who either drifted or intentionally just walked away. And John's basically saying, listen, if you're truly in Christ, they're going to stick. They're going to stay. They're going to follow the Christ road. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines the commands of men. So there's people in the, the sphere of Christianity. This was Judaism. Outward appearance looks great. The heart wasn't changed. And that's why in the same message, 
Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is how he closes it. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, and notice this next phrase, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. The issue about perseverance of the faith is one thing. Do you truly know Christ? Have you truly put your faith and trust in him? Have you repented of your sins, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and were you adopted into the family of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, a promise to the day of redemption? That's what it means. And so this is difficult. I've had people in my life and my family, dear loved ones like Babia, who seemed to be in, and then, ah, persecution, or this or that, knocked on their door. They drift or they depart, and it breaks your heart. So can I give you a definition of perseverance of the faith? And this is very important. Here's what I believe it is. True Christians may experience serious spiritual setbacks, but never completely fall away from God's grace. I want you to just digest that for a little bit. True Christians may experience serious spiritual setbacks, but never completely fall away from God's grace. Let me ask you a question. David, a man after God's own heart, right, had the Spirit's anointing and empowerment. Did he grieve God through his sin of murder and adultery? Absolutely did. But he also wrote Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit in me. He repented of his sin and was restored. In the same passage, there's two guys, Judas and Peter. Both of them denied the Lord. Liars. Peter cussed that night. I don't know this ex-guy. What happens to Peter? He hears the rooster crows. He goes out and weeps bitterly. He comes back because he was truly in. I know this is a tough doctrine, but it's something we have to wrestle with, folks. Perseverance of the faith is God's work. Let me show it to you one more time. It's not predicated upon us. What he began, he will complete. Look at 1 Thessalonians. We're going to get there. Chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now notice this. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. It's his work. What he began, he will complete. He's faithful to complete the work he began. And folks, that should give us confidence. That should give us assurance. We should thank God for that. And so when you stumble, when you fall, man, like Peter, you weep bitterly. You confess your sin. You turn, you repent. You come back. You experience his grace, his mercy. Let me go back to the Haystack Prayer Movement. I want to introduce you to a gentleman. His name is Adoniah Judson. You got to know this guy's name. He's the first missionary to ever be deployed from U.S. soil. He came out of the Haystack Prayer Movement, but guess what? He was a scholar uh, beyond what's normal. As a teenager, he was teaching adults. He knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He was a genius of geniuses. And one of his professors persuaded him against Christianity. And at a point in time in his faith journey, he declared himself an atheist. The people in his sphere of influence 
the haystack guys who were running with him, believers, their hearts were broken. But guess what happened? God showed up. He had a divine appointment, and I can't go into all the details. I'll refer to a couple books to you. He had a divine appointment. He went all in. Here's the rest of Adoniah Judson's story. He went to Burma. He took the gospel there. Taking the gospel to Burma was hard. It cost him his first two wives and numerous children because of disease and sickness. They died on the field. Just imagine. Seven years uh, passed before he saw one individual come to genuine faith in Christ. Seven years. You lost two wives, children, seven years before anyone said, count me in to become a Jesus follower. Forty years he persevered in the faith. God's work in and through him. He translated the whole Burmese Bible. Folks, that's unprecedented. It doesn't happen. And this is in the 1800s. There was no computer language software. He also translated a dictionary so the next missionaries could follow up an English Burmese dictionary to help the gospel to continue to advance. When he passed, the government said 200,000 Christians were attributed to the ministry of one man, Adoniah Judson, because he went all in for the gospel. And at a point in time, he declared himself an atheist. But you know what? Perseverance of the faith. God showed up. He was truly in Christ, came back, and God used him in a remarkable way. Finally, priority number four, preparing God's people. And we'll wrap up here. Now we're in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. Um, just stick with me. You can see it on the screen. Here's what Paul does. The church is planted, remember, three Sabbath days. He only spent three weeks with this church, and then he gets booted out because of persecution. Doesn't seem like a long time to help a church get established, right? So here's what goes on. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourself know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him, meaning Timothy, to find out about your faith. Notice what Paul's saying here. Fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Paul had three weeks, three Sabbaths with the church. You know what his heart? His heart's broken. He's wondering if the gospel seed that was planted was watered and bringing real lasting fruit. So what does he do? He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back with a report, and you're going to see in 1 Thessalonians, wow, did God's work, his church advance through three works of ministry. So Paul's burden was alleviated because the church was flourishing. And so what does he do as a pastor? He sits down because he can't be present. He writes a letter the first epistle to the Thessalonians. There's three purposes behind the letter. One, to give encouragement. Way to go, guys. Your faith is real. It's genuine. The second thing he wants to do is to give correction. You have misinformation. I want you to know the truth. Why? The truth will set you free. 
And the third thing is to just develop them theologically. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians deals with the second coming of Christ. How interesting, because the word on the street was uh, not clear. And so Paul addresses it. And so here's the encouragement. Jesus is building his church. He invites us to prioritize and partner with him. I want to encourage you, first things, pursue God. That's where it all begins. If we have a passion to pursue him, God's going to work in and through us. There will be divine appointments as we've illustrated in Acts. Keep the gospel central. Please don't compromise the gospel. Friends, persevere. Yes, there will be tough times. There will be difficult days. Whether it's personally, family, uh, church, there will be persecution. Why? When the kingdom is advancing every time in the book of Acts, there is op opposition. And then finally, let's go all in. Let's be committed. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for such a beautiful and powerful promise to build your church, to see your kingdom come. Jesus, thank you that we as partners with you in the gospel are on the offensive, not the defensive. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. We declare that. We believe that. So, Father, today, would your spirit just apply these truths to each of our lives, cause us to pursue you, Lord. The early church is so clear. You lead, you show up, you do divine things when we pursue you, when we minister to you. And, Father, I pray when times do get tough, and they will get tough for various reasons, You just stabilize us through your spirit, through your word. So we stand in awe of you, Lord, for how you are building your church and pray in Jesus' name you'd help Westwind to be partners in that effort. Amen. Let's stand, let's worship together.